Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast, a selection of all our best bits from the last five days. And this week we've talked about the pressure on men to look good, how the police are tackling domestic abuse on the Isle of Man, and we were joined by an inspiring woman who says she never lets her disability get in the way of her dreams or ambitions. We also went along to the opening of Sleeping Angel Wood, a place of reflection for parents who've lost a baby, be it through miscarriage, stillbirth or very early on in life. But first, why not start this podcast with some music? I'm the uh, musical director of the Moreno and Seren, the WI Choir. And I'm here in the music room, as you can hear, with all the girls singing, practicing. And we're here because you're, you're celebrating a special occasion. Your CD has just been released. Yes, we are so, so thrilled. We started off in 2012 doing this sort of like a competition. And we were just 12 friends, started together, rehearsing right through the winter, did a competition. And we got up to, we're up to 40 now, 40 ladies. We've had such a fun and such good. And we said, oh, we don't want to finish the choir now. Let's make a CD because it's the centenary of the WI this year so we thought yes we're going to make a, a CD so that's where we've actually started from it's wonderful fun <laughs> how many tracks are on the CD we've got 15 tracks and they include all sorts of things we've got um, some beautiful words written by a Manx lady Kathleen Farragher who's written many Manx books and beautiful poetry and she's written words to the tune Jerusalem and we've got that on the CD which is a beautiful thing we've also got uh, very kindly Marilyn Cannell again a lady who lives and Kurt Michael, Manx through and through, has done a wonderful arrangement of Ellen Vannon and let us kindly sing that. So we love singing that. And then there's all sorts of pop songs, uh, Beatles songs. It's sort of like a smattering of, there's even one Christmas carol. So we've got a, a smattering of everything, sort of like, uh, as I say, there's 15 tracks on there. And what would you say is your favourite? Oh, well, I like the one we were just doing, and it's in the background, Only You, and I love the Ellen Vannon, because that means an awful lot to us. And the Ordinary Jerusalem, which is the WI sort of like theme, I, I love that one. Each, each one has got something. And what was it like when you first got that first CD in your hand? Was it really exciting? I couldn't believe it. We'd done it. We'd done it. And the, all the artwork is done by one of our wonderful ladies, Ruth, Ruth Blindle, who's in the choir. So we've got the artworks done. There's music by Manx people. It's all the ladies are all on there. They're all singing and we're together. Some of the girls listened to it and said, oh, there's two tunes because they've only ever listened to their own part. And then all of a sudden they can go, wow, look, we're singing in two and three parts here. Oh, it was such fun. It really was. And you're raising money from the CD for a really good cause. Oh, yes, because we're going on with education. One of the main themes of the WI is to educate women and to give them opportunity and chances. So when they come to here for rehearsals, they learn music, learn all about music and the theory and the sheer joy and enjoyment of music. So we're going to go to an international choral festival and we're going to represent the Isle of Man and we're going to sing in the folk song class singing Manx songs to represent the Isle of Man in our uniforms. So the 
all the money will be going to the fairs, etc., because we are completely self-funding, which is great. We love it. We have good fun. Those huge events that you attend, do you get really nervous? Absolutely petrified. Absolutely petrified. And I put my hands up to conduct, and I can see them shaking. So I sort of have to steal myself, because if I start shaking, the girls are shaking. So it's a very, very brave thing to do, to stand in front of them and waggle your arms and just think everything's going to hopefully be all right. So what do you do to keep calm? Breathe. It's the only thing, I know it's stupid, but what you tend to do is to hold your breath because you're so frightened. But this time, as long as I just keep breathing, I keep saying to the girls, breathe, do Tai Chi exercises, breathe, and we'll be fine. <laughs> so the CD itself, where's it going to be sold? Um, it's going to be sold in Celtic Gold in the Isle of Man. There's a WI office in Ramsey. You can get it from there. We have a lovely lady in the choir, Diane Derber, and she could, um, if you ring her and, or email her, she will sell you a CD as well. And then if you speak to any choir member, really, or WI member, you can get it for them. And are you hoping, come on Karen, are you hoping it's <laughs> going to make the UK top 40? Well, naturally. I mean, that's what we were aiming for. What do you think? Of course. <laughs> so what is next for the WI? Well, after this one, which is in April, I think we're going to start looking for, I would love to go to, I would love to, go to some other country. I mean, what's wrong with going to, to England and, and, and Spain or, or wherever and do another different uh, music course over there? I think is there anything special coming up for Christmas for you? No, we've done lots and lots of concerts already for Christmas. We're doing the Federation Carol Service at St. Ninian's on Friday, the 4th of December. We're at Port Erin on the 6th of December on Sunday. We're doing carol singing for hospice. And we're doing carol singing for the WI at Timwall Mills. And then we can have a break. Do you ever get fed up of singing? <laughs> never, never. I sing all the time, all the time. Hello, I'm Pam Beden. I'm chairman of the Federation of Women's Institutes here on the Isle of Man. I am so, so proud to be here tonight for the launch of the choir CD. As far as I'm aware, no other choir that entered the national competition last year has made a CD, and therefore we believe we're the first. So from where we come from three years ago to where we are now is nothing short of amazing. Would you say that this is a lot to do with Karen's enthusiasm? Oh, it is. Um, I've spoken to members who joined recently, and they just talk about how much fun choir practices are, and it epitomises what the WI is all about, fun and friendship. Joe talking to Pam Beden, chair of the Federation of the Women's Institute on the island. And before that, choir leader Karen Elliott at the launch for the WICD. It's available now from any of the choir members, Celtic Gold in Peel and the WI office in Ramsey. And all proceeds will go towards funding the choir's trip to Bangor in Northern Ireland in April next year when they'll be competing in the International Choral Festival. Well, our guest today was born premature at just 24 weeks. One of twins, she weighed just one pound and 11 ounces. It was when she was three months old that she was allowed to go home from hospital. And it was then that they realised something was wrong. She couldn't see. 
But she hasn't let that stop her for a second. And she's here in the studio today to tell us her story. Samantha Rash, thank you for joining us on Women Today this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Um, Hello, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So, Samantha, I gave you a bit of an introduction there, but can you talk us through what happened when you were three months old, you returned home? How did your family realise that there was something wrong with your eyesight? Well, I believe that uh, it was because one of them was looking at me and speaking to me and they discovered that I wasn't making eye contact with them when they were speaking. So they were like, well, what's going on? You know, why isn't she looking at me like a normal baby would? So they told the doctors and they told the nurses and they did some investigations and they discovered that due to too much oxygen being used in the incubators to keep me alive, I had retinopathy of prematurity, which is where your retinas detach And that's incredibly serious. Yes. So then I imagine you went through a series of of operations. Yes, I did. It's still disputed to this day what exactly happened. I don't exactly know um, whether they removed certain parts of my eyes or what. But I know that they did say to my nan that one of the consequences of this would be that my eyes would have a pearlized look so if you were to look into my eyes they would be sort of a pearly white color like milk Mm -hmm. because of cataracts right and there's sort of nothing you can do about it really you could remove them or you could scrape the calcium off but because my eyes would have calcified because they're not seeing but there's no point because it will just keep coming back um so so for for clarification i suppose without a retina you see nothing at no. all no, no no light no dark no no, no. form no nope. and of course you you've never known any different no i haven't so what do you think that period of your very early life was like for your family um it was stressful for my mother my biological mother she couldn't cope um so my nan adopted me and My nana brought me up and she bought toys that rattled and had a scent to them so they would have cocoa beans in them or things like that. And she would also, if we were going out anywhere, she'd tell me what season it was and tell me what smells were in the air and when it was night, when it was day. Um, She'd say... It was daytime because there was a lot of traffic on the roads and the birds were singing. And if it was nighttime, it was very cold and quiet and there was no cars on the road and no birds singing. So you get to learn <clears throat> for yourself, I suppose? Yes, I'd get to learn. How did your nana learn how to do that? Was she educated? Was she given any help? Or was it just her own common sense? Um. Well... She had a great-grandmother who went blind due to macular degeneration, which is a disease common in elderly people. And she had to guide her around and look after her at the age of 15. So she had already been given an insight into what it was like 
living with somebody without sight. But my great my nana had my my nan's great grandmother had an advantage because she'd already had her sight before, so she could remember how to do certain things. Whereas with me, my nana had to learn how do I teach Samantha how to do something on her own. But she just did it. She just learned herself. And that's something that your your grandmother has always been very keen to instill in you, is that sense of independence and, and you when you can, you do it on your own and you go for it. Yes, never give up. Don't quit. Um, there's no point in giving up because you'll only regret giving up afterwards. You'll think, should I, you know, could I have done that better? Um, my nana has always said, I don't want Samantha being treated like a blind person. I want her being treated like anyone else. So when the government decided at the age of four that they wanted me sent away to St Vincent's, then um, my nana said, no, I want her staying over here on the island. Well, take us back to your, your school days. What was school like here on the island? Well, when I was at school... There was, at first, no sensory support service like there is now. So um, they were all learning off each other. So they had to learn Braille at the same time as I did. They had to learn, <coughs> excuse me, how to teach somebody mobility. They had to learn how to interact with a blind person and how to prepare my work. So... I guess for them it was difficult as well as the mainstream teachers because they'd never had somebody who was blind. I was the first child born totally blind in 13 years on the Isle of Man. A first in many ways then for a lot of people. Yes. So <clears throat> please, please excuse my ignorance, <laughs> but when you were a child, were you given a, a, a stick? Was that something that you were allowed to do? Um, no. I wasn't allowed to use my cane um, until I was 16 years of age. In fact, I didn't even have a cane until I was about 15. And I wasn't really given much mobility training with a cane until then, um, until Manx Blind Welfare got, got involved. And um, the school's reason for me not using a cane was health and safety. And there's been a story on the news about a girl in England not being able to use her cane for the same reason. And I think it's highly discriminatory because a cane is, in many ways, our eyes because you sweep it across the floor um, from side to side. It has a roller tip on the end of it. It has like a ball and you sweep it, and it will tell you what texture is on the pavement, um, whether something's in front of you. It won't tell you whether something's head height, though. You have to judge that for yourself. And that's another skill that my nana honed in on, always making me listen. She would go to one end of the garden, and... I would have to go and find her. And she wouldn't tell me where she was. I'd have to go and find her and I'd have to sense 
by listening to the airflow and listening to the sound pinging off her where she was. Well, sound is something that has been incredibly important to you. We should say you are just 22 yes. as well. But it's something that's very important in your life. You've already been quizzing me on types of microphones and editing equipment. <laughs> I'm worried I'm going to let you down, Samantha. But um, we are going to talk a little more um, a bit later in the programme about everything you do in terms of further education and how, as I say, you haven't ever let your medical conditions get in the way of anything you want to do. No. But when did you discover that you also have epilepsy? Well, I went to the Royal National College for the Blind in Hereford and in my first year, after a month of me being there, it was the 30th of November 2011 and I was in a mathematics class when I suddenly went down and hit the floor and began to have what they used to call a grand mal seizure. And... I didn't know anything about this until later on. Now, I used my recording device in lectures, so unfortunately, or should I say fortunately, I got the whole thing on record. And the nurse, when I came round, said, ''Oh, you just fainted. Do you know what made you faint?'' And she wasn't there to see the whole seizure at the time. So um, when I went to my room that evening, I listened to the recording and I heard this weird sound that sounded like something out of a horror movie. (laughs) And I was like, what is this? That doesn't sound like a faint, Mm -hmm. you know. And then um, I heard all this moving around and irregular, heavy breathing. And I thought, ooh. That does not sound like a faint at all. And I didn't know what it was. And then my nana said to me, because she, she looked at me on Skype that night, and she said, you look like you've been beaten up. You know, what's wrong? I said, nothing, I haven't done anything. And she said, but you've got bruises on you and everything. And then um, it was only when I got home that members of my family listened to it, one of them was a senior healthcare assistant and they said oh that's a seizure and then my nana took the recording back to college and she said if this happens again I want her admitted and it did it happened a few months later. How do you begin to get your your head around a, a diagnosis of epilepsy? Well after the second seizure which was worse because I banged my head on the floor when I went down and it was a hard floor, I was in the refectory. Um, I was given a CT scan and an EEG, electroencephalogram, which is where they put the probes on your head to measure the electrical activity in your brain. And if it's irregular, then it's it's epileptic activity. And if it's not irregular, then it's normal. And mine did pick up irregular patterns of electrical activity on the right side of my brain and um, the letter was sent home um, concluding that I have epilepsy. I expected it coming. Um, I wasn't upset about it really. I guess at first I kind of denied it but 
I was worried about how serious it was. Would it mean that I wouldn't be able to go out on my own, etc. Um, I don't know how my nan felt. She never really told me. But then, she's not one for doing that. She doesn't tell me how she feels. Sam, I have to ask you, um, you're young, you're 22, you've been diagnosed with epilepsy, you're blind. You know, I'm actually quite in awe of you. You're an inspiring young woman. You seem incredibly positive. How do you keep so happy and positive about life? Through my nan. She she says it it doesn't do to dwell on negativity. She always says, you know, if you've got negative worries... And she calls it past baggage. You know, don't carry it round with you. Leave it behind. Is there as much pressure on men to be thin as there is on women? Well, comedian Michael McIntyre has been talking to the media about his own experience of yo-yo dieting and joking he has trimmed down for summer and is now, and I quote, chubbing up for crimbo. He also joked about being able to wear his old clothes and feeling comfortable, but then added, what confuses me and frustrates and upsets me is I don't know why I lie to myself about it. I am so annoyed that the weight is coming back on. Now, we talk a lot on this programme about the pressure women and young girls face when it comes to looking good, be it from airbrushed magazines to lads mags and, and pornography. But Does the same pressure apply to men and boys? We'd love to hear your thoughts and experience on this one. You can email womentoday at manxradio.com. You can text 166-167. Of course, you can go to the Facebook page or Twitter as well. I think it's right that we go to a man first on this one. And handily, we have Ed Oldham with us today. Ed, do you think there is pressure on you to be thin? I don't think the word thin as such really applies as much for men as it does women. You're more talking about, uh, to use the, the you know the parlance of our times, ripped. So you know you're looking to be muscular, let's say, according to all these magazines like Men's Health, Men's Fitness, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you're looking to have like muscular bulk, but also be you know have a six pack and all this kind of stuff. And I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily feel under pressure to uh to look like that at all because um well a not everyone wants to and b not everyone can and c um it's all well and good you know looking supposedly appearing healthy but you're not necessarily healthy underneath because of what it can take to end up looking like that joe you're nodding you obviously agree yeah i agree with what you're saying now i don't think it's the fact that men need to look slim but i love the word ripped because you're right it's the word we probably should be using um but yeah toned definitely by going to the gym maybe because you hear a lot of guys going to the gym but i guess it's quite intimidating as well for for lads going to the gym because you see some that are lifting these ridiculous amounts of weights and you know it's not always very good for you to do that either because of course it causes a lot of stress on the body if you know you're not supposed to be doing it but yeah I think that um I think for men there is pressure there more so now and I can talk about as an experience from my past where I did run a weight loss group and because I saw more and more men coming to the weight loss groups and a lot of them were referrals from the doctors actually so it was more for health benefits um but especially also because they came with their wives and so um the weight loss group that I worked for also changed their advertising because they based it a lot in the past on women losing weight and then suddenly men were appearing in the adverts see that's that's the 
thing that gets me when you talk about advertising and I think when it comes to um, pressure when we talk about it from our own personal experiences and I think a, a lot of that comes from advertising and a lot of it comes from people wanting to sell you products and I think um, this goes for men as well like protein shakes and all that kind of equipment that you need in order to lose weight as well it's all those things that go alongside it and I just get a bit annoyed I suppose by that combination of doing something for yourself that is is healthy and and probably for the best but then also being pressed into it from a commercial point of view of people just wanting to sell you things well people want to sell you things all the time and a lot of advertising is based on preying on your fears and insecurities you know it's obviously apparent with what you've spoken about um with uh, women in the past with with anything from makeup to fashion to all these sorts of things but it happens in so many different walks of life you know advertising tries to make people worried or scared because i think they're more inclined then to go and buy this product that supposedly will help them in some way do you think we as women put pressure on men to look a certain way joe um, I think that is totally dependent on your relationship. Um, and I know that a lot of men get very fearful of when their wife has lost a lot of weight. Um, and sometimes I've heard it again from my past where the wife is saying that they actually wish that their husband would join them. But I've also heard it naturally because the wife is losing weight. She's cooking that way that the man does tend to lose weight. I don't think we set out to put a lot of pressure on men to lose weight I think that as you say comes from advertising but I think it more so comes from maybe your mates you know whether you're young or you're old because in actual fact I'm seeing it now with my son's age group that it's 11 um, I you know I couldn't believe it my son stuck his tummy he's stick then and he stuck his tummy out the other day and went look I'm getting fat and I was like oh my goodness me I just ignored it um, but a lot of his boyfriends are you know they're um, they're dressing more, they're more conscious of what they're wearing than my brothers ever were at 11, or they're styling their hair more, and, you know, they're looking at these footballers, and they well, want I mean, to be that, like that, them. That happens anyway, that's natural. I think what's changed these days is that there's a lot more of this emphasis, like say, on sort of gym fitness. You know, sport is everywhere and all pervade, pervading these days as well, obviously, and, and you, you, we're in an age now where a lot of footballers are built like rugby players used to be built. A lot of rugby players are built like, I don't know, bodybuilders probably. The, the way that sport has changed over the years has, has had a huge impact on that. And of course, also associated with all this is that, you know, if you're big and muscly, then it means that you're more manly and all this kind of stuff as well. We, we still, unfortunately, have to deal with uh, stereotypes like that that have been going on for who knows how long. Joe, you mentioned your son, and I think in the past we've talked a lot about um, young girls and the pressure on, on them. Do you think we kind of dismiss the pressure on young men and just kind of pretend it's almost not there and not take it as seriously as we do young women? I absolutely do think that. I really do. I think that, you know, boys don't get talked about a lot when it comes to that pressure of having to look good, of having to be, you know, looking sporty and being sporty as well. Mm -hmm. You know, even at school, I think the less sporty kids that are boys get left out of things too. I think it's really interesting um, from my group of friends when we left school and suddenly the boys didn't have to do gym or PE um, a certain number of times a week week and that they all kind of stopped for a while and then it was only I suppose when we were second year third year at university that suddenly they picked it up again and I think it's really interesting when you stop being forced to do it that maybe it takes you a little bit of time to get back into it. It can do if it's not part of your life anyway I would say you know if you, if you didn't do out of school sport then that would probably be the case yeah. Anthony Allen I'm intrigued what you think about this one is there pressure on uh, on men to be as thin as uh, the pressure on women? 
Oh, I can only speak for myself personally. Uh, I think there's pressure on me to be thin, uh, but maybe that's the pressure I put on myself because I know that um, I am um, more overweight than I would like to be. Uh, I was speaking to Jo um, earlier, and uh, she's given me a couple of good tips. That, <laughs> I was giving you free weight loss advice. <laughs> <laughs> that um, I hope to put into practice, because um, probably like, like most men, uh, I'd like to be uh, less heavy than I currently currently am. We've had a text in that says, Dear Kate, Joe and Ed, and I'm assuming they extend their welcome to you, Anthony. It is an interesting notion that men would want to be thin, they're saying. In fact, as a lean man who has always been from a young man now into my 50s, I've always, to the contrary, wanted to add some weight. The alpha male is expected to be toned and buff. I've always found it insulting when people say you are so skinny, especially when the inclination from observation is to say, wow, aren't you fat? I suppose they say the grass is always greener. Stacey says not to be thin but to be in top physical shape yes absolutely for example to have as much muscle as possible no matter how it's achieved and I think that's what you were saying there Ed. What's that? That, Just, that's the, that is the pressure yeah of course it is of course like I said it's to be this sort of hulking mass with uh, you know six pack down the front and a shaped like an, an inverted triangle that seems to be the way to go these days well mark also says to be honest weight is not a big issue it's how you feel about yourself and not what others think i have actually lost a small amount of weight but feel healthy and good about it for myself only women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away now, if you see a police officer today, you may notice that they're wearing a white ribbon because the Isle of Man Constabulary has become the first organisation in the island to make a public show of support for the White Ribbon Campaign, an international move to end domestic violence. Already active in the UK and North America, it wants men to make a pledge they will never commit, condone or remain silent about violence against women. Well, I've been speaking to the Constabulary's domestic abuse coordinator, Leanne Cullivan, to find out more. She works as the link between the police social services where she's actually based and the public to ensure that all information is shared between social services health and education and first of all i asked leanne how they define domestic abuse within the police force when we're looking at domestic abuse from a police point of view we're looking at any incident of physical violence towards another person but it also goes into a number of different areas including psychological abuse emotional sexual and even financial abuse and um, we define that as any person or partnership who are over the age of 16 who are in a relationship who have been in a relationship or who are family members regardless of sexuality or gender and that's how we define a domestic abuse incident. I imagine from your point of view that physical abuse is perhaps easier to, to, to prove or you have more evidence than something like psychological abuse. Absolutely, and physical abuse is the easiest thing for everybody to see. It doesn't mean to say that it's any worse. In fact, it's often quite a short-term thing compared with years of abuse, which is controlling in nature or psychological. And it's, it's more difficult for the individual to spot as well as for other persons. So yeah, it is harder to deal with, but we do have cases of it. What do you see on a kind of day-to-day basis then here on the island? An, a number of different incidents, really. We can have a fight between a married couple that's resulted in injuries to one or both, and that's in the simplest of forums really then we can see you know i mean the couple may or may not have children so that takes us in one direction or the other it may be a person who's reporting years of 
sort of financial control by their partner. They're not allowed access to money. They're not allowed access to property documents and things like that. It can be abuse from a 16-year-old teenager who is acting out a bit to their parents and is causing trouble and is becoming violent on occasion. It's really, really broad and it's really, really frequent. It's much more frequent than I think many people understand. Is it possible to predict the the kind of next case that will come in or or predict that it hasn't finished for a couple or a family? When we have a case certainly from a police point of view and the officers who would attend would complete a risk assessment on on the couple their information is stored with us whether they choose to do anything about it which is take it towards prosecution or any proceedings or whether they don't we do store it and we are we do keep hold of it and we do issue um, a marker of sorts for the police so that they understand that if they have cause to deal with a person again there has been a domestic incident whether they're the victim or the perpetrator in that instance, we know that something has happened and it may well be quite a stressful environment that we're entering into for any other matter. So it's recorded, but it's it's very carefully risk assessed and we have four levels of assessment. One is standard and standard doesn't mean no risk, but it means the lowest of the risks. And then we have medium, high and very high. Risk is based around lots and lots of different, really quite intrusive questions that we have to ask, but we do it for the protection and welfare of the person and of the family. And it can be as a result of frequent incidents of a very low level, but many over a couple of weeks or months, or it can be as a result of one particularly violent and serious incident. And they can both score very high but they're completely different and and it's just about assessing and managing the risk because obviously we, we can't take it away ultimately. Am I right in thinking the reporting rates of domestic abuse incidents are actually on the up? Absolutely um in the last year or last year rather uh, we had 298 reports of domestic abuse uh, this year we're already up to 259 reports which we see as a really, really positive thing as a constabulary because as far as we're concerned, our main goal is to raise the profile and awareness of domestic abuse. Um, Actually, if we can support people through it and if people are reporting it to us, that means that we're doing something right, really, that they want our help and that we're succeeding in providing a service to them, regardless of what it is, um, whether it be supporting them through a court process or whether it be supporting them because they've chosen at that time not to do anything about it, and that's OK too. Of course, though, when we when we talk about people coming forward with um, statements or, or claims, we, we do have to remember the mantra, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And I just wonder how much you worry that as the profile of, of something like this is raised, that more people come forward with, with false accusations. That's always something to be considered in, in, in all aspects of our job as police, really. It isn't too much of a worry because I think we... We get things right and ultimately we try to do what's best for the person who's asking for our help. Um, But we examine every facet of the incident and then the relationship. And it does, as I said earlier, become really quite invasive, but in a good way because we do get to the bottom of things. So ultimately you can never 100% understand what's happened between a couple when nobody else was there except for them but we do we do work hard to try to establish as close to the truth as we can get
Well, tell me about the White Ribbon campaign then. Okay, the White Ribbon campaign is something that we feel really excited about as a constabulary. It's a campaign that is run in the UK, um, it's run in North America, it's run in Canada, and we are the first organisation, I believe, on the island to try and gain White Ribbon accreditation. White Ribbon is largely men standing up to domestic abuse, and the tagline is that men should want to not commit, condone or stay silent about abuse towards women. We obviously understand that abuse comes in many forms between many groups of people and it's not always men abusing women but it's an excellent place to start and I think that we just want to get the message out there that it's not okay and we hope this year the constabulary will raise the profile from within of domestic abuse we need to remember sometimes relationships are complicated and there's more to it necessarily than meets the eye but we do want to act and we do want to help people and we do want to provide the service that the people of the Alaman deserve and this is a campaign that has come very much from the top of the island's constabulary that's right the chief constable is incredibly behind the campaign and um, he's wearing his white ribbon I believe at the moment and um, every member of the constabulary is wearing a white ribbon to to support the campaign women as well I'm wearing one myself today um, but the male officers are the ones who are trying to get the message out there a little bit more and they'll be uh, trying to share a white ribbon with another male as well for anyone who is listening to this and and wants to talk to someone more about any abuse that they're perhaps going through or just find out a little bit more about the process of reporting it where should be their first port of call i would always suggest to contact the police for support contact the control room it doesn't matter if it's happening now or if it's happened but really it is good to talk about your experiences the control room will put you through to an officer either immediately or maybe through to myself depending on the circumstances of what's being reported but I really would say reporting it or not is irrelevant but telling someone are not suffering in silence and not going through something alone all our agencies now and I'm talking about the likes of health education social care are all well versed in what to do with a disclosure about domestic abuse and and it does no matter what channel it comes through go in the right direction and we find the right people and know that through you know everything the police is doing and and especially this white ribbon campaign they understand and, and you're on their side absolutely absolutely Should feminism be taken out of the A-level politics curriculum? That's what we're asking now, as the UK government has announced plans to remove the current section of the course which concentrates on issues around sex and gender. In the Department of Education proposal, there is only one woman in a list of political thinkers, Mary Wollstonecroft, and the consultation on the proposed changes to the syllabus has come under a lot of criticism from campaigners. A petition has gained thousands of signatures, with the author saying, the problem with erasing and writing women out of history is that we only get half the story. And she goes on to say, when women are underrepresented in society, the government should be working to address this problem. As a young woman and student, it is imperative that girls and boys get the full picture at school. All we are doing them a disservice. Female role models are important. Well, Jacqueline Gerdelet, the co-founder of an organisation aimed at inspiring girls into science, technology, engineering and mathematics, wrote on her blog... 
We are going through a huge feminist revival. Our daughters and granddaughters, sons and grandsons, nieces, nephews and families need to know about the movements and key female figures that got women to where they are today. If we know nothing of key social and political milestones, women gaining the right to matriculate and graduate from many universities in 1920 and gaining the right to vote, how can we learn from them and progress? Women's voices are often silenced. Let's not let them silence the women's voices of the past, too. And a spokesperson for the UK government says... We are reforming GCSEs and A-levels to ensure all pupils are equipped with the knowledge and skills they need to progress to further and higher education, access a wide range of jobs and succeed in a competitive global market. We want schools to highlight the issues faced by women from all walks of life and ages in history including the work of key female political thinkers within the ideologies covered and in UK and global politics. We are carrying out a consultation on the new politics A-level and, as always, we will listen carefully to the views of the sector. So what do you think? Should feminism be removed from the politics curriculum? Or, in doing so, are we silencing the voice of women in history and into the future? Let us know what you think on this one today. Email womentoday at manxradio.com, text 166-177 or head to the Women's Day Facebook page or it's at Today on Twitter. Well, we thought this would be a good subject today because obviously we do have a teacher in the studio, Geraldine Jameson. But before we come to you, Geraldine, I should probably say that I did do AS level politics as an additional subject um, in my last year of school. And I'm sure a lot of people know I went on to study politics uh, along with sociology at university. And my politics studies uh, specialised in Middle Eastern politics on one hand and feminism on the other. So I think my opinion on this may be a little bit predictable. Joe, what yes. do you think? Okay, so I'm surrounded by two very, very strong women. So I hope you're feeling sorry for me at this you're point. You're a strong because, woman uh, yourself. I'm a strong woman, but when it comes to this subject, I ain't that strong. Um, Should feminism be removed from the syllabus then, Joe? I don't think it should be entirely removed from the syllabus. However, I think it needs to be pointed more into a history as a subject rather than politics. My view is that, um, you know, feminism has done an awful lot in the past to bring women forward into the future and to be able to have their vote. And, you know, and I totally understand that. Um, can I just say at this point that I'm very happily sitting on the fence um, because I'm not a strong feminist. <laughs> you, wuss. you know, what, what worries me a lot is that in actual fact, you know, a lot of the time this programme is it's called like a man-hating programme. It's because we talk about women and we talk about female issues. We also talk about equality because we bring men into a lot of the subjects and say it's not always happening to women. And that's where I come in. You know, I'm quite happy as long as we are equal. But I'm also one of those that, do you know what? I'm happy bringing my kids up, standing in a kitchen, cooking for them, putting them to bed and not having to go out to work. Um, I'm not a strong feminist, I have to say. I've said this before, Joe. I think you are a feminist. I just don't think you like or want to put that label on yourself. Because you believe in equality, you believe that men and women are equal. And for me, that is what feminism is about. But we're talking here about a school curriculum. Should women, not women, sorry, should feminism be taken out of it? And I think it's quite ironic, really, that they're asking that when there is only one female political thinker on the list to even then think that we should remove feminism when you can clearly see it's not equal now. Okay, so to turn that round, you know, 
do we study manninism? It's, yeah, but, <laughs> because the rest of it is, though. But you've got, I think it's a list of seven. One woman, six men on this list of political thinkers. I think there is a place to hear the voice of women both historically and women of the future. And you can, there's a phrase that's often used when we talk about this kind of thing, and it's, it's um, you can only be what you see. And I, I really think that's incredibly important, particularly within schools, to, to reinforce that. You can only be what you see. And if you're not seeing equality in your within your school board, then you can't be it. So do we need to be talking about feminism in both politics and history? We need to be talking about women in both politics and history. I agree with that. I do understand that because there are very strong figures from the past and at, at the moment, obviously, in politics. And uh, maybe, you know, Geraldine, you say maybe not enough women in politics. But, um, yeah, I I don't think this is my strongest subject to talk about. I'm going to be absolutely honest with you and say I'm pretty easy going with it and say, you know, I do believe that there is a place to talk about men and women in politics and history. I think... We're saying the same thing then, if there's a place for men and women. Uh, yeah, but do you know what? I just, I don't think there should be such a huge uproar about it. Um, I think that we should recognise, but it shouldn't be a topic in itself. What do you think, Geraldine? Well, I think in politics and in history, you have studies about racial discrimination. So why can't we have studies then about female discrimination? Also, I think for thousands of years, unfortunately, we've had patriarchal society. We did actually have matriarchal society before that and it is because we've had this bias for all for this length of time that we consider these studies not as important as others. Um, for me, because the issue is still there of gender inequality, then it is something that we have to look at and examine. But do we not think that men get discriminated at any time? Of course. But that's where we have equality and where we need equality. I mean, that if we have these major issues that still exist of, as I've said, racial inequality, female inequality, uh, also perhaps sexual orientation inequality, there are all sorts of equalities out there that are studied in politics and quite rightly so because these are the major um, aspects and issues that influence uh, opinions and attitudes and it is still a relevant issue today. Um, according to the UN studies, in uh, 37 countries, there are less than 10% of women in any uh, parliamentary position. And the Isle of Man is one of, those, one of those states. So it is obviously a very real issue. I just don't think that we need to highlight women separately. I just think we should all be together I, I as know, one. I absolutely agree with you. I completely, 100% agree that we should be looking at men and women as one. But the problem is, to get there, you have to highlight women. Yes. Because... At the moment, you're not highlighting it, so you can't bring them up to that standard. But we standard. must be highlighting women because already we're talking about feminism being as a, being studied in politics, so we are highlighting so, women. So why are we removing it then? Or, um, or cons why is the UK government considering removing it? But is it going to be that we then don't talk about women at all? I think we would be. I think we just talk about it as one whole subject and not separating it. But if it could have remove it from a curriculum, then... It needs to go into other places then, I'm is that sure, what you're saying? I'm sure it will. I, I think, to go back to the point you made before, Joe, about not considering yourself to be a feminist, um, when I was thinking about this in terms of, of education, I'm under no illusion that, that you know everyone thinks that they are or considers themselves to be a feminist. But actually, I don't think 
that's not the reason for me to enough reason to remove it from a school subject because you don't only teach about one political ideology because you disagree with others so in the UK you don't only teach about the Tory party because you are Labour or vice versa and I think that education is about challenging people to think things that they don't agree with and think about things that you know they've never thought before and so I think that's another reason why it's incredibly important to keep it within A-level politics. Mm. We've had lots of comments. Should we go to them before we we, uh, throw things at each other? (laughs) You go first. Get me off the subject. Okay. Well, Helena has sent a huge comment in saying, having studied politics at university and being female, I can't see why feminism was even a topic as the ASA2 level syllabus at all. Not going to help those students going on to uni at all as it is no basis on what you need to learn in politics. The subject is mostly political theories and sorry to say there are not really any women who wrote boring, dry political theories. History, yes, I can see feminism as an important part of the syllabus. Thank you. And when I studied a few history modules at uni, women's importance in history is frequently brought up. So yes to adding in history if it isn't already, but no to politics. Not useful at all unless you just want to study political history, which also having been an A-level history student, that is the most of the subject. I've got to disagree with that one because studying uh, feminism at as a speciality at university it was pretty helpful but we had another comment from Susie who says without the feminists of the past the education minister wouldn't have that job or arguably the vote we learn from history and history includes the fights and victories of women for equal rights you might as well delete civil rights campaigners from politics too and watch the uproar then an area of the countryside to remember lost loved ones has been opened as a place of reflection for island parents. Bereaved parents can plant trees in memory of their child in Sleeping Angel Wood, its near Ingebrek Reservoir. Tori Smithy's son Charles was stillborn in 1996 and she miscarried twins 12 years later. And so she set out to create an area where parents can reflect and remember their children. It's for all parents who have suffered a miscarriage, a stillbirth or lost a baby and a tree can be planted in their memory, as I say. Well, Joe went along to the official opening yesterday and first spoke to Tori. Today we're just officially opening the woodland and we've already started planting trees but um, David Cretney has come with us today to, to officially say that we're here and that we're open and that we've started planting. And what is this event in aid of? Um, mainly to raise awareness that we're here. Um, we're still sort of a, quite a, a quiet charity I guess and we, we, we're not out there in the middle of the street so it's just about raising awareness and saying that we are here and we can help. So. And it's a sleeping angel's wood where yes. we're, we are today and there's lots of parents around yeah. us and it's a happy event. Uh, it is, yeah it's uh, I think for lots of the parents it's a it is a happy thing they're sort of they're they're glad to have somewhere finally that they can recognize and come and sit and remember their little ones that that isn't the same as a churchyard it's quite a a morbid place really sometimes churchyards aren't they so this is somewhere beautiful to go that's a bit different do you know you're right it is a beautiful location I've never been here before it's just somewhere that you could oh you could be in Scotland the Lake District we're looking at the reservoir we've got all the autumn colors coming through why did you pick this location because of its location because of the views that it has because of the fact that it's it's easy to get to and it, it is accessible but at the same time it's out of the way enough so that if someone is up here and they are having a, a particularly bad day and they're upset there's no one going to intrude on their grief they're just going to you know leave them to it up here so and what are the type of trees that you have planted oh wow there's lots of different ones and um, they're all broadleaf so and they vary from um, sweet chestnuts all the way through to we've got an elder wild cherries all sorts there's 
Lots of different ones, rowans and dogwoods. Anything that's got a broadleaf, we're planting it. And where did this idea come from, Tori? It came from my son being stillborn and a miscarriage some years later. And the fact that I felt grateful that um, I had a grave for my son because after the miscarriage I had nowhere and nothing. And it was a recognition that actually there's, there's a lot of people in that same position. They've got nowhere to go and nothing that actually recognises that they've had this loss. So that's what Sleeping Angel Wood is about, is saying actually these babies existed. And, that you know, we all recognise that people are going through a, a quite a tough time behind closed doors. So... And we're here with Mr David Cretney. Can you just explain your involvement with this today, please? Well, quite some time ago when Tori was looking around, when she first came up with the idea and was looking around for potential sites, um, she contacted me and I contacted others to try and uh, find somewhere. I think there's been a number of sites that have been looked at along the way, but I don't think there could be a more appropriate or beautiful setting than this for such a special place and uh, I'm delighted that now I'm involved with DEFA um, responsible for the amenities and forestry lands that I have the opportunity to come along today and be part of this special ceremony. And are you going to be honest like me and tell everybody that actually it's a part of the Isle of Man that you've not been to too? Uh, well I've, be, I've obviously <laughs> been been around this area but I've never been in this forest, I've never walked up the paths and I'm, I'm out all the time everywhere so this this is somewhere where I'm definitely going to come back to and have a walk around because you know as the trees grow, as the broadleaf trees grow and we think about the young ones that are, uh, are no longer with us then this place is only going to become more beautiful and you know and as Tori says it's it's quiet enough it's detached so that people could come and have a moment on their own as they wish but also it's just as typical Isle of Man it's just contrast the the reservoir opposite the trees here it's just so beautiful it's it couldn't be more appropriate. It's a very peaceful place. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your day today. I know it's very important to all of our families, and there are some families that couldn't make it today for various different reasons, but they are here in support, in spirit at least. So if Mr Cretney would like to come and officially open our little wood, and hopefully I'll see lots of you soon as we continue to plant more and more trees. I can't contemplate what the families involved here have had to uh, go through in their lives. But at least here, there'll be somewhere forever where the children will be remembered forever. You can come here and spend some time. And it's just such, as I say, just such an appropriate, lovely place. The trees will grow just as the children would have grown and they will never be forgotten. And so it's my pleasure and honour to unveil a plaque. Catherine, why did you decide to get involved with the Sleeping Angels? I think it's a fantastic idea for people like myself and other families. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your story? Uh, we lost our baby um, in, uh, over a year ago now, and since we got in touch with the Sleeping Angels babies, we just decided to come along and get involved, and I'm glad we did. What type of tree have you planted? A crab tree. Any reason why? I liked it. <laughs> yeah. So for apples? For the colour. For the colour, I like the colour of the tree. We all picked it together. And you named your child? Yeah, Joseph Christopher. And this is going to be a lovely place for you to come and remember him? Yeah, beautiful, yeah. And I'm also here with your son. Stephen, what do you think of it today? Really, really good. Is it quite emotional? Feel quite sad? Yeah. I can see you feel a bit tearful there. So it's going to be a special place for you to come and remember Joseph as well. Yeah. Well, my wife saw the uh, 
Facebook page and uh, thought it was a, a lovely thing to do to uh, plant a tree to remember our, our son who's not with us. Um, so that you've got somewhere where you plant a new seed of, of life and you can come and remember him by. It is a beautiful, beautiful place and really very peaceful as well. Mm-hmm. How much time do you think you'll spend up here? I think we'll come quite a lot because the boys like being outdoors, our, our two here, and we'll bring the dog and then we can uh, you know, maybe bring a picnic and come and sit up here and enjoy the views. And we've got a brother here. What's your name? Oliver. And Oliver, do you know why you're here today? To Rambolio. And what do you think of it as a place? It's magical. It's very, very special, isn't it? Yes, it is. And would you like to spend some time here remembering Leo? Yeah. So I'm back with Tori now, and we've unveiled the plaque, and we've spoken to lots of parents. It's been a really, really lovely morning. It has, yeah. It's been nice to catch up with a lot of them. Some of them we only see as they come and plant, and then we don't really see them much. We talk to them a lot through Facebook and messaging, but we we don't actually get to see them all together. So it's nice to have them all up here. And it was nice to see them all wander off and go and check on their trees as well. That was really cute to see that they go and check and look at their plaques. Quite a lot of parents speaking to me just said, what a wonderful job that you have done. Uh, well, I, well, it was needed. Somebody had to do it, and I, I'm glad to be able to help them all out, really. It's, it's something for them, not for me. So, And incredibly rewarding also that you speak to parents, and they've been up here already, they've met each other, and they were actually having a little bit of a social time together. Yeah, it is. It's lovely to get them all together, and I think that's part of what we aimed for with the wood, was to get them together and, and put them in touch with each other, because you feel so isolated when you lose a baby that you, you think you're on your own, and actually this proves that you're not. There's, there's lots of people out there that are going through the same thing. I think that's helpful. So, And so from now, you're going to take photos, I hear, each week and see them grow we are yes we're planning to do a time lapse for the parents a bit of a christmas present for next year um but our photographer is going to take a picture every week and then put it all together and give it to them next year and say this is what the wood looked like as it grew throughout the year so i think it'd be nice for them to see it changing in all the different colors and everything sprouting up and, and sort of drawing back again thanks for downloading the women's day podcast don't forget you can always listen to each fuller program on demand via manxradio.com or tune in live every weekday just after two o'clock don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click Shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.